Thank, thank you for clapping for me. I really appreciate that. Hey, um, if we could, let's look at the slide right now. And I have a question. I'd like you guys to actually talk about this in uh, a group or among yourselves. But I'd like to ask you to actually uh, talk about these two things. Please share what you've learned in the past about the 12 disciples. So whether it's in Sunday school, in Bible study, whether it's in popular culture, uh, whatever it is, what have you learned in the past about the 12 disciples? And then what practical lessons have the 12 disciples taught you about discipleship? Meaning how to become a disciple, right? So if you could actually uh, ask those things and just kind of honestly talk and share, that would be great. Let's take time to do that right now. All right, if I could have your attention. You guys are talkers, so I've learned that in my time here. You guys talk, and that's awesome. So I have to bring you back, all right? And you guys can talk afterwards. This is awesome. All right, we are going to spend the next few weeks talking about discipleship. And I'm so excited about that because that's what I'm most passionate about, the areas of evangelism and discipleship. And so this is something that I am chomping at the bit Uh, to be a part of. Now, Wilson has done an amazing job the last two weeks uh, summarizing the themes and the structure of Matthew's gospel. And so I won't belabor the point other than to say in this chapter, chapter 10, Jesus is training his disciples. He uses the word apostle. Now that word is very rich in meaning, but the only thing I want you guys to think about today with that word apostle is apostle means sent one. So that's Jesus' intention now. He's taking the disciples and he's making them apostles, those to be sent out. And this is intensive training that he's doing in discipleship. So today, all we're going to do, important initial truths about discipleship. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look look up here and we'll begin looking in verse 1 through 4. Let's look at it. And Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every sickness and disease. These are the names of the 12 apostles, the sent ones. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your wisdom and discernment this morning. We ask that as we look at these disciples, that you would speak to us in a very personal way. Lord, speak to us afresh and anew about what you've called us to, what you chose us for. And I pray, Lord, that this would be a launching point to the desire that we have to be your disciples this summer. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So as we look at discipleship, the first point I want to look at, if we can look at it right now, is Jesus chose ordinary people. Can we have that slide up? Jesus chooses ordinary people. If you're taking notes, write that down. In verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him. The word called literally means summoned, that Jesus personally summoned these men for discipleship. He identified them, he selected them, he equipped them, and then he empowered them. In John 15 and verse 16, Jesus says, 
you did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you. They didn't volunteer for this. No, they were chosen divinely by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you might ask, why were they chosen? Why choose them? Were they special? Were they like the X-Men, right? Were they mutant metahumans with special terrific powers? Or were they the Avengers? Were they Earth's mightiest heroes? Did they have a collection of geniuses and uh, mighty men and uh, people that were uh, innovative and extraordinary? Is that why Jesus called them? When we look at the religious artwork about the apostles or the disciples from around the world, if you look at the Orthodox icons, or you look at the Roman Catholic statues, or you look at the Protestant stained glass windows, if you look at the murals uh, in Italy, and you look at all the different frescoes from around the world, you get the idea, or at least culture has built it into us, that the apostles were otherworldly, that they were superheroes in a way. But the fact is that when we read the scripture, we realize one glaring thing, that these men were ordinary, ordinary. Not one of them was known for their intellectual talents. None of them had exceptional abilities or outstanding qualities. They were complete outsiders from the establishment of their day. How do I know this? Well, in order to understand, we need to look at the educational system of Jesus' day. So do me a favor. Uh, put your hand on your head. I've asked you to do this before. Put your hand on your head and take off your Dodger baseball cap, okay? In this auditorium, there's no Angels baseball caps, only Dodgers baseball caps, okay? So take that off, okay? Put it to the side, okay? Revere it, okay? Don't throw it away. And then put on your Hebrew sudra. Would you do that? Your first century sudra. So what we're doing is we're taking off the first century idea and we're going back to the first century, okay? 21st century is something we're not thinking right now. We're looking at the first century. So in the first century, the educational system of Jesus' day, most people sought after the position of a rabbi or better way to say it is rebbe, a spiritual leader. So in the towns and villages, all Jewish boys dreamed of becoming a rebbe in Israel. It's like an Asian boy fantasizing about playing in the NBA, right? When I was a kid, that's what I used to dream about. When I went to bed at night, a good dream was playing in the NBA finals. I was on the Lakers, and I had to guard Michael Jordan, and he didn't score a point on me, and I scored like 40 on him, right? That was kind of that fantasy. And in Israel at this time, right, the idea was that they could become a Rebbe in Israel, So the education of God's word was central to Jewish life in the first century. That's why all the boys in the towns and villages wanted to be this. Because of this, all Jewish children, girls and boys, went to synagogue to be educated in God's word. Now the first stage of this education was to go to the house of the book. Can you say that with me, house of the book? Okay, so they would go to the house of the book, and they would go at six years of age. And at six years of age, they began being taught the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And they began memorizing. Imagine this. At six years of age, they began to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So that from ages six to 11, you would memorize the whole Torah. Imagine that, right? Memorizing the whole thing. And you were, if you had a photographic memory, right, 
able to bring things up. And if you showed exceptional ability in the memorization of the Torah, you were invited to the next stage. Now, not many made it. They were cut, right? A lot of the women weren't, in, uh, women weren't invited, so they, you know, they would get ready to get married. But the boys who were exceptional got to go to the next stage. They would go from the house of the book to the second stage, the house of learning. Say house of learning. House of learning, right? So from ages 11 to 15, some scholars say from ages 11 to 17, right? Uh, you memorize all of the Hebrew scriptures. So all 39 books, right? Of the Old Testament. And they began uh, teaching you the commentaries. And they began training you in the art of pilpul. Now, the art of pilpul was the Jewish method of answering questions with another question. It was the Jewish Socratic method. And they did this because they wanted to master your reasoning abilities or to see how well you reason. Uh, You know, when you look in the Bible, right? When Jesus spoke to the Pharisees, the Pharisees would ask him a question, and then he would say, let me ask you a question, right? He wasn't trying to be a smart aleck, right? Sometimes we think, oh, he's trying to be cute. No, he wasn't. This was, the, this was the, uh, the way that they were done that day. And the rabbis or the rebbies who were good at it, right, were back and forth, back and forth, able to do this, okay? So if you were exceptional at the house of learning, if you were the best of the best, only then could you move to the next stage. Again, many people were cut, right? So if you were the best, you would go to the third stage. You would go from the house of the book to the house of learning to the third stage, the house of answers. Say the house of answers with me. House of answers, okay. And here now, you have officially entered the major leagues. You have now entered the NFL draft, right? NFL stands for National Future Leaders Draft, okay? You are now eligible for the NBA draft. NBA meaning National Big Boys Association draft. You are now eligible because you'd proven your talent. You'd proven your ability, You were skillful, and therefore you could be a future Rebbe. At this elite stage, you would choose an admired, a famous, a popular Rebbe with a lot of gravitas, and you would ask to be his disciple. Now the Rebbe would say, if you want to be my disciple, I have to test you. And so he would test to see if this disciple were good enough. He would test them in their understanding of the Torah, He would try to bring up, and if you had a photographic memory, you were able to do this, bring up different ideas. He would test you in the rest of the Bible, the Tanakh, and and the rest of the Bible. He would test you in commentaries. He would test you in the art of pill pull. He would go back and forth with you to see if you were that promising student, to see if you had that greatest potential, if you were the wisest or the talented or the gifted. If that Rebbe believe that you had what it took to be his disciple, that he would say to you, come follow me, right? Come follow me, three words. And you would leave your parents and your family and your community, and you would follow the Rebbe wherever he would go. You would be his disciple. You would do this so that you could learn as much as you could from this Rebbe because you would have disciples of your own someday. But if that Rebbe thought you weren't good enough, and remember, it it could be that way in all three stages of what we talked about, he would not say to you, come follow me. Instead, he would say, go, work a trade, right? Become a fisherman, or a farmer, or a craftsman, or a laborer. There's no shame in hard work. You're just not that smart. 
You're just not that great. Pray that your son would be a Rebbe. He would be good enough. But for you, you're not good enough to be my disciple. Wilson laughs. Yeah, is this something that comes to mind? Yeah, all right, all right, all right. You're not good enough to be my disciple. Listen, it's in this context. Who was Jesus choosing? He was choosing the fisherman, the farmer, the craftsman, the laborer. Twelve men who were not good enough. These men who had given up on that dream many, many years ago. And it's amazing that Jesus wasn't following protocol of a Rebbe. He didn't wait for the usual suspects of the best and brightest to come to him. In fact, he was doing the opposite. Jesus went out to find ordinary people who were cut by the religious system because they were not good enough. They were not discipleship material. And here the Bible says that Jesus, verse 1, summoned them. Come follow me. He went to the fishing boat and said, come follow me. He went to the farmer's field and said, come follow me. He passed through the craft tables and said, come follow me. He stood at the tax booth and he said, come follow me. He chose ordinary, average, regular nobodies. And by the way, have you ever read that passage of scripture where James and John are on a boat with their father Zebedee and Jesus goes, come follow me. And they drop everything, right? And come follow him. When I was a kid, I used to read that thinking, did Jesus have Professor X type of abilities? Did he hypnotize them? Why in the world would they just drop everything and say, bye dad and follow him? If we understand the culture of the day, what was happening? Jesus was saying to them, hey, listen, I want you to be a disciple. I want you to be a future Rebbe. And these men who years ago probably wanted that but couldn't have that said, dad, I got to go. And it was built into the culture of that day, right? By the way, if I was in college and Magic Johnson came to my dorm room and he said, come follow me. I would have left my books, my computer, my girlfriend. I would have left everything to become a Laker, right? Because that's what I've always fantasized about. And Magic Johnson thinks I'm good enough. Really, he doesn't, but he thinks I'm good enough, right? That's the same kind of understanding. Why did Jesus choose them? And here's my point. God has always been in the habit of choosing the ordinary, all throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Why did God choose them? There's a verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I have it right up here, if you can look at it, verse 26 through 29. And here's God's word. Would you put it up right now? For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise by worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no one may boast in the presence of the Lord. Why did God choose ordinary people? Because in verse 31, ordinary people boast in the Lord. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, God delights in using the ordinary Because it's the ordinary that knows beyond the shadow of a doubt that it's not about them. That they have nothing in and of themselves that they bring to the table. They're foolish. They're weak. They're despised. They're low in the world's eyes. Therefore, there's no pride. There's no arrogance. 
There's no conceit. They know that the Lord is the only one that deserves to be boasted about. Remember, we've talked about this. This is a theme. Jesus didn't come to this world for those who think they're okay. He came for those who know that they need him, right? And here Jesus is doing that same thing. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It's one of my favorite Old Testament passages. It says, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. You see, ordinary people know they can't boast about their wisdom, their power, their riches. They don't have that. They can only boast that they know and they understand that the Lord is who he is. Amen? So that when God takes the ordinary person and he does the extraordinary through him or her, all they can do is raise their hands and say, it's a God thing. All they can say is all glory is rightly given to God. Hey, are you ordinary this morning? Are you average? Do you feel obscure? Do you feel like nobody knows your name? Are you wondering, can God ever use me? Can I'm, here, I'm here to tell you, yes, he can. Because that is exactly the kind of person that the Lord delights to choose and to use. The second point we want to look at is Jesus chooses imperfect people. The misconception is that these 12 disciples were morally superior people. Now, I've led people to Christ, and I've discipled them. And I remember somebody in particular, his name is Dan, who comes from a traditional type of religious background, right? And I remember uh, we were talking about being a saint. And I said, Dan, you're a saint. And he said, whoa, hold on a minute. I'm not a saint. And I said, of course you're a saint. The Bible says you're a saint, that I'm a saint. Anybody who knows Jesus Christ who's been saved, regenerated, they're saints. And he says, oh no, I'm not a saint. And I said, why do, you, why do you think that? He goes, because Peter is a saint. Because James and John are saints. Saints are these super Christians. They're the morally superior of us. And maybe I'll get there, but I'm not a saint right now. And so I had to teach him what scripture has to say about this idea. Because let me share with you, these men weren't super Christians. Amen? Can you say amen? Amen? They weren't super Christians. These men were completely flawed individuals. You see, the Bible doesn't sugarcoat or airbrush the men and women in Scripture. They are presented warts and all. And here we see in verse 2 through 4 that God gives us a list. Now, we don't have to time, to, uh, time to look at all of them. I'm only going to highlight a few. I'm going to take some snapshots and I'm going to take some unflattering pictures, right? Not their best pose. I'm going to take the other pose, okay? And I want us to look at this. Number one, we want to look at, if we can put it up, Peter the denier. If you want to turn to Mark chapter 14, you can. If you want to, just listen. Peter the denier. Can we put that up real quick? Peter the denier. In Mark chapter 14, at the upper room, before the events leading up to the crucifixion, in verse 27, right after he Um, has the Passover meal with them after he washes their feet. It's an amazing time. Jesus springs this on them, verse 27. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. So Jesus states that this will absolutely happen, that these disciples whom he loved and discipled would desert him and run away and scatter, leaving him alone to face the cross. Imagine what a bummer that would be for the disciples who were having a great time with Jesus, and then Jesus says, you know what? You're going to betray me, right? 
Jesus knows this will happen because the prophet Zechariah, in Zechariah 13 and verse 7, prophesied that this would happen hundreds of years before this event, right? And I want you to notice what Peter says in verse 29. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Verse 31, Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. I want you to notice Peter's response is arrogance. It's arrogance. Think about this. He is so arrogant that he denies biblical truth. Jesus, I know what the Bible has to say, but you know what? The Bible's wrong, okay? I'm not going to do that to you. He is so arrogant that he overestimates his spirituality over the other disciples. Jesus, these guys may, right? I could, I could understand how they, but I'm the rock, you know? I'm your foundation. I'm not going to do that to you. Later that night, after Jesus was tried, verse 70, after a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. His accent gave him that he was a disciple. Verse 71, Peter began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man you're talking about. Now, invoking curses doesn't mean that he cussed them out, okay? In the Bible, invoking curses on oneself was a kind of witness. It was done in the, in the Bible. And it's an invitation for God to witness what is being said, that it's actually true, and to punish that person if that person is lying. This is a very grievous thing. And Peter is saying this. Why? Because Peter's scared, right? Because Peter's understanding the situation. What has Peter come to? One moment he says, I will die with you. The next moment he says, curse me, God, if I even know you. Peter the denier. Let's look at the next one. James and John the supplanters. Okay? In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 35, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. The right and left seats beside any monarch was the privileged power positions in the kingdom, okay? So think about what they were requesting. James and John selfishly, ambitiously wanted to supplant all the other disciples by being the most important. Now, I don't know about you, but that's messed up. If your friend ever did that to you, right? And in verse 41, when the 10 heard about this, they were ticked off. They became indignant with James and John. Let me give you another one. Luke chapter 9. This one's shocking. It will shock you, okay? <laughs> National Enquirer time, all right? Verse 52. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Jesus is going to Jerusalem, and so he's going through Samaria, and he needs to set up accommodations, right, as he's going up there. But the people did not welcome Jesus because he was heading to Jerusalem. Okay, so they didn't, uh, they didn't want to welcome him. Verse 54, here's the shocking part. When James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want me to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? What? What? Did they just ask for supernatural power to burn up everybody in a whole village? For what? Because the people were rude and inhospitable? And the excuse was, it was all for Jesus, Right? But when did Jesus ever ask them to burn down a village for him, right? When did Jesus ever want that? When was that ever Jesus' mission to the disciples? He has said time and time again, I've not come to destroy, I've come to save. 
But these disciples are like, let's burn up this village. Let's burn it to a crisp. You know why? Because they were ticked off, right? They were ticked off for Jesus, but if we were honest, they were ticked off because they were inconvenienced that way. Man, these guys are cold-blooded, right? These three, Peter, James, and John, were the Lord's inner circle. With friends like that, man, who needs enemies, right? Oh my gosh. Have the halos fallen off these guys in your eyes yet? They had serious flaws. They were impetuous and proud and selfish and malicious and vindictive. Let me give you another one, okay? Thomas the doubter. Thomas the doubter. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the 12, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Okay, he'd risen from the dead. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand, put my finger there where the uh, nails were, put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Thomas challenges what Jesus had promised over and over again that he would do, right? When he was with them, rise from the dead. And here he stubbornly refuses to believe Jesus had risen and remains entrenched in that mindset, even when the other disciples testified to it. He absolutely emphatically believes Jesus could not have risen by saying that the only way that he would trust that reality would be physically, tangibly touching Jesus. He had to have that evidence or he would not believe. So in verse 26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you, verse 27. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hands, put it in my side, stop doubting and believe. Jesus rebukes him, why? Because Thomas was a doubter. Let me give you another one. Matthew, the sinner, okay? In our text in verse three, Matthew still refers to himself as a tax collector. Remember, it's Matthew who's writing the gospel, right? He could write it however he wanted. Well, he couldn't really because it's the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But why? Why would Matthew, right, put in his title tax collector? The tax collector in Jesus' day was the worst of the worst. They were referred to as the scum of the earth. They were the epitome of the word sinner, The Talmud actually taught it was good, even righteous, to lie and to deceive a tax collector because that's what they deserved. Now, why were these feelings there? Do we feel that way about the IRS or the IRS agents? We shouldn't, right? There's no reason to. But yet, here's what I'm trying to get at. A tax collector, right, in this day was the scum of the earth. When Rome conquered an area, their main concern was to take a large percentage of wealth and resources from that area. And so Rome would franchise tax collectors from that area among that people to make sure they received their taxes and their tribute. So the tax collectors would make sure that the right percentage went to Rome, but in order to make a huge profit, they always increased the taxes. They always padded the numbers so that they could extort a huge profit from the people, okay? Now you're seeing why they were hated so much. Tax collectors were like the mafia. They always got their money, okay? By whatever means necessary. Threats, intimidation, violence were their calling card to make a profit. And the reason why they were so hated was because they would prey upon their own people for the oppressor to become fabulously wealthy. That's why they were called sinners. They were greedy, they were oppressive, they were dishonest, and they just flat out betrayed their people. 
This was what Matthew was before Jesus called him. You see, the reason why the writer of this gospel refers to himself as tax collector was to remind himself and all of us what Jesus had called him out of, a sinful past. By now, you're probably saying, man, I feel uncomfortable, right? You might be thinking, wow, this is so negative. Dave, you are such a negative person. I mean, how much more shade are you going to throw out the disciples, right? My goal is not to diss the disciples, all right? I'm not trying to troll the twelve. The purpose isn't to gossip about these men, okay? Let me be clear. My purpose is not to disparage the disciples. My purpose is to demystify them. Why? You see, God uses and chooses imperfect people. Maybe today you're saying, God can never use me. I have real anger issues. I get bitter and resentful from the things that happened in my past relationships. God could never use me. You know what? So did the Apostle James, right? You say, God could never use me. I struggle with selfishness. I'm tempted to be petty. I can get manipulative. Guess what? The Apostle John had that problem too. You don't understand. I battle doubts and depression. I have too pessimistic an outlook to be a good disciple. Well, that's probably how the Apostle Thomas felt. What kind of disciple could I be? I'm flaky, I'm inconsistent, I have a bad track record of being unreliable. Oh yeah, the Apostle Peter could speak to you on that subject as well. If you say, my past, look at it, all the things I've done, all the mistakes I've made, you wouldn't say I'd be a great disciple if you knew my past. Well, let me introduce you to Matthew, the ex-tax collector turned apostle. He would definitely disagree with you. You see, the reason why God uses imperfect people is actually my third and last point. Can we put it up? God loves this. Jesus does this. He chooses to transform people. Can I get an amen? Our God is a recycling God. You know, our God practices green methods. That's his MO. Reduce, reuse, renew. Think about this, all right? He reduces who we are our flaws. We're reduced to the fact that we're no good without him. And then what he does is he reuses us from what we used to be to what we can be for him. He reuses us in his image and then he renews us, right? We're recyclers, right? He renews us by transforming us into what he wants us to be. Our God is into green technology. He loves to take broken and flawed and weak and sinful people and transform them through his power. This is discipleship in a nutshell. He does this to make us more and more like him. You see, the disciple, when he is fully prepared, will look like his Rebbe, his master, right? Peter the denier was transformed into Peter the leader. In the book of Acts, he spearheads the gospel mission boldly and effectively, and he becomes their chief spokesman. He becomes that rock that Jesus always said that he would be. James the supplanter who selfishly manipulated his agenda became James the pillar. And in the book of Acts, he gave his life selflessly in martyrdom to advance not his agenda, but the gospel agenda. John, who could be malicious and vengeful, was transformed into John the apostle of love. That's what we call him today. His writings contain more about love than any other person in the New Testament. Thomas the doubter, after the resurrection, was so full of faith that history tells us that he boldly went to India with the gospel and started a movement there. 
And to this day, there are churches that trace their lineage back to not Thomas the Doubter, but Thomas the Faithful. And there are countless Indian Christians who claim their spiritual legacy to this man. These 12 flawed men turned the world upside down through the transforming power of Jesus Christ. And guess what? Matthew the sinner, remember him? The outcast, the one disqualified by all rabbinic authorities to become a disciple because of his evil, sinful past. Guess what? He was transformed, and he wrote the Gospel of Matthew. Some scholars say that he wrote it as a discipleship manual, and I believe this, for all of us as Jesus' disciples to learn and grow from, and we're doing that right now. Amen? When the Lord called you to be his disciple, he knew you were imperfect. He knows you're flawed. He knows you're not that great. And he doesn't ask you to be perfect in and of your own strength. All the Lord asks you to do is come follow me. Three words. And he will transform you as you take that journey with him. As you walk with him. As you follow hard after him. As you surrender to him. You will not be the same person. You will look like him. Amen? John chapter 15 says... Jesus says to his disciples, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. You know, God can use the ordinary. God can use the imperfect. As a matter of fact, he regularly does. But there's one person that God cannot use. And that is the person who refuses to commit to him. And if I had time, I could spend a whole message on Judas, the one who betrayed Jesus. Okay, I'm not going to do that. Okay, But I'm going to say that Judas, we always think of him as his worst thing is that he betrayed Jesus. And of course, that's true, right? But we fail to remember that the betrayal was a symptom. And what was at the root It was that Judas was an actor. He was an actor. And the word hypocrite, I don't know if you've ever known this before, but the word hypocrite was actually a Greek word that just meant actor. We use it as a pejorative term. Oh, you hypocrite. But all it meant was actor, right? George Clooney is an amazing hypocrite, right? Charlize Theron, wow, what a hypocrite, right? It just meant actor, one who puts on a mask. And Judas, the Bible says, went throughout his discipleship And everybody thought he was the disciple, but the Bible says he did not believe. You know what he was doing? He was just acting. He just had his mask on. And it was so good that nobody knew except for Jesus. And my friend, the person who refuses to commit to Jesus outrightly or maybe as a hypocrite is never going to see the power of God on their life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these disciples. Lord, we ask that you would work in us to be the disciples that you want us to be. God, whatever is here in our hearts right now, we pray that we would surrender it to you, that we would not be like Judas, but that we would commit ourselves wholeheartedly to following our Rebbe. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said,